Thank you very much, worship team, Mark, Eric, appreciate all of you very much. It's good to see you this morning, glad you could be here. Thanks for sharing, appreciate those words of encouragement and um, uh, our sharing time is a blessing in so many ways, so appreciate your participation in that. If you would turn to Psalm 33, we want to continue talking about the love of God, but we're transitioning now to talk about what believing the love of God for us should do in us and through us. And so we want to look this morning, or at least begin looking this morning at Psalm 33 to talk about that and think about that. When we come to Christ, we basically do two things. We are called to turn from our sin and turn to God, because before we turn to God, we're looking to the world and sin to meet our needs and to satisfy our souls. And repentance is turning away from all these things, realizing that nothing in this world and certainly not disobedience to God is going to satisfy our souls. And so we turn to God for what we need and what we desire. And he proclaims to us the testimony that he's given to his son. And he says, embrace my son and trust yourself to him and you will be forgiven of your sins. You will receive eternal life and I will be your God and I will be there for you. And so the beginning of the Christian life is a turning and a trusting. And then day in and day out, the Bible calls us in various ways to trust and love. That trust is the trust in the promises of God to all those who have turned from their sin and entrusted themselves to Jesus. So each day we seek to trust what God has promised us and then to love in light of what God commands us to do. And so every situation is an opportunity to ask myself, how do I need to trust God's promises in this situation? And how do I need to love the people in this situation? How am I to trust and love? And what we've been doing for the last several weeks is highlighting the fact that one of the most important ways to look at the promises of God is to look at them in terms of God's love, that he's promised to love us that all the promises of God are, in a sense, lumped under his promise to love his children perfectly, fully, and forever. And so it's at the heart of trusting God in every situation to trust his love for us. But we might ask ourselves, what is at the heart of loving? And at the heart of loving is what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks is actually loving the love. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to talk about the fact that the Bible says God is love. So to love the love is to love God. The Bible also says the law of God is an explanation of what it looks like to love. So to love the law of God is to love the love. And then you can just boil it down to loving to love like God loves that ultimately what God is moving us toward is to love him, to love his word, and to love loving people like he loves people. But an important part of getting there and loving God and loving his word and loving people like God loves is fixing our hope on God in light of the fact that we know that God loves us 
and we have begun to believe that God loves us, the Bible in various ways calls us to put our hope in God's love. And so we want to look at that um, this morning, or at least begin looking at that this morning in light of Psalm 33. I've told the story before. It's a story that's been told in a number of different ways about Martin Luther. And uh, basically the idea is Martin Luther uh, wrestled with depression, discouragement uh, at various times in his life. And sometimes it would be pretty severe. And during one of these times, uh, he evidently went away for a while to try to address his despondency. And it didn't help. Uh, His wife, um, Katie, he called her, uh, tried to encourage him. And that didn't seem to help. And so one way or the other, depending on the version of the story that you might hear, she dresses in black and maybe even dress the kids, their children in black. And Martin Luther uh, walks into the room and sees her dressed in black and says, who died? And she says, well, Martin, it's obvious based on the way you're acting that God has died. And so we're just mourning with you. And all of a sudden, Martin Luther immediately knew what his wife was doing, gave out a loud laugh and said, Oh, Katie, you can take it off. I understand. God is not dead. I need not act like it. And so that's what we see in Psalm 33. And we'll see also later on in Psalm 42 and 43 is that we are prone to be despondent, to be Eeyore's, in life, looking at life as, you know, glasses half full, seeing the negative, seeing the the, um, the problems and being overwhelmed with it. And ultimately that's uh, connected to our vision of God and what he's doing and whether or not he does truly love us in the midst of these circumstances. And so we want to um, see the importance of... Um, What we find, for instance, you may not have that. There it is. There's this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to mention him several uh, times today because he also struggled with depression uh, in very, very significant ways. And he said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When you are so weak that you cannot do much more than cry, you coin diamonds with both your eyes. The sweetest prayers God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but his love. And that's what we're going to be talking about is hoping in the love of God. And so let me read for us Psalm 33 and we'll... Uh, highlight various things that it says, and hopefully it will encourage us to not simply passively hear, oh yes, God loves me. We've talked about Romans 8. We've talked about all these other passages that talk about how God loves me. But we want to begin to make sure we're acting on that. We're acting on that knowledge. We're acting on that belief. And hopefully this will encourage us to do just that. In Psalm 33, it says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. 
For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all, hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. It's interesting, one of the things that uh, has been noted a number of times over the last year and a half with the pandemic is that there are a lot of things that have been the result of our response to the pandemic, like lockdowns, school closures, and things like that. And they would say that more young people have died from taking their own lives than have died from the actual virus because of lockdowns, not being in school, and those kinds of things. So what is that? That's a despair. That's a despondency. That's a response to hopelessness. And what we want to talk about is the fact that we're all prone to that in various ways, to various degrees. We're all um, inclined to go there. And the question is, what are we going to do? How are we going to fight that, even as believers? The first thing that we want to think about is what it says in the first five verses, that we are to worship God for his love. And if you think about how often we sing about the love of God here at Coast, we sing about it all the time. And we, the last song we sang talked about the fact, Jesus, uh, your love uh, causes me to sing. And that's exactly what we see in these first five verses where it says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Now it says, Sing for joy in the Lord in relationship to the Lord, who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do. It doesn't say necessarily that you're singing about how much you love your circumstances. But sing for joy in the Lord. Why? Because praise is becoming to the upright, to those who are right with God, to those to whom God has promised uh, great and wonderful things. Praise is up, um, becoming to us. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Um, it's interesting. Um, 
Before I came here to California, my house burned down and I lost everything I owned except the clothes on my back, literally. And as a result of that, I thank God for things now that I didn't thank him for before that happened. Uh, I went to Malawi many years ago, too. And as a result of going to Malawi and the things I experienced there, I now thank God for things today that I did not thank him for before I went to Malawi. I got married, I have five children. I now thank God now, today, for things that I did not thank him for before I got married and had five children. And so what does it mean when it says sing to him a new song? It doesn't mean you write a new song every day. It means every day is a new occasion to praise him and thank him. It's a new opportunity uh, in light of whatever God is taking you through to praise him and thank him in light of what he's doing, in light of his faithfulness, in light of his kindness, in light of his provision, in light of his protection, all those kinds of things. And so we are to sing to him a new song based on new experiences of his faithfulness to us. It says, play skillfully with a shout of joy for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness, which means he always does what's right. He's always doing good to people. And then it ends with the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord or uh, the earth is full of God's love. So he loves righteousness and justice, which is another way of talking about his loving kindness. So you could say he loves to love. He loves the love that he shows. And we're to be the same way. Um, Not too long ago, I read about uh, Paul McCartney, who had this little debate with John Lennon. And uh, John Lennon didn't like the way uh, Paul McCartney wrote uh, what he called silly love songs. And as a result of that, Paul McCartney wrote a song called Silly Love Songs out of that debate that they had. And he talks about how that over and over again, people sing about love. And some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. And he's talking about himself. And he's basically making a statement to John Lennon uh, through that song. The reality is a lot of what we sing about whether in the world or in the church, revolves around love. Because when you think about it, for us as Christians, uh, if we just if we sing about God's greatness and his power and his wisdom and his omniscience and all those things, but if he did not love us, we probably wouldn't sing it joyfully. We might sing it as a fact, But it wouldn't bring us joy. In fact, it might terrify us. If we knew that he was everywhere we are, he knew everything that we did. He was all powerful powerful and could do anything to us he wanted to and did not love us. It would be terrifying. So ultimately, even when we sing about all the other attributes of God, they are not good news unless he loves us. And that's why we sing so much about the love of God, because it actually causes all the attributes of God to be good news for us rather than a threat to us. And so in the first verses here, it talks about uh, rejoicing in the Lord 
in light of the fact that the earth is full of his loving kindness, which means everywhere I look, I can see God loving. Every person I look at, somehow I can see how God is loving them. Every uh, thing that's going on around me, to one degree or another, we can see the love of God operating. And yet, as Scott highlighted, it's very challenging sometimes to see it through our tears, to see it through our pain. And Charles Spurgeon uh, was one who certainly hoped in the love of God, and yet he talked very much about how he experienced some really difficult times in his life, uh, had some really extreme physical afflictions. He talked about having gout in, that was so severe that it was like being bitten like a, by a cobra. It's intense, intense pain. And yet, he could say, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health with the exception of sickness. So he says, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing when God gives us health, but it's even better when he gives us sickness. A blessing is something good. A blessing is an expression of love. So he's talking about God is loving me even when he's giving me hard things, he's giving me pain. And the way he connects it is, he says, if some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. Which means uh, we are actually um, benefited more by pain than we are by good times. It humbles us. It gives us the opportunity to identify with others who have pain of various kinds. And so he could still see, even through his tears, that God was his father and was loving him. In fact, he was in so much pain one time, he started crying out. He asked everybody to leave the room and he prayed, Thou art my father and I am thy child. And thou as a father art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Wilt thou hide thy face from me, my father? Wilt thou still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? So he's pleading to God as his father. He said, Father, Please relieve me. And he said, God answered that prayer. And yet, God did not completely take the pain away because obviously he died um, suffering right before that. And I'm going to turn this off so um, there's no more noise from that. And so the point is, you can... See God's love in your pain and in your suffering and yet still ask for God, plead for God to remove it. The the difference is we don't rejoice in the pain itself. We rejoice in the God who's sovereign over it and is using it for our good. But he still tells us to pray to be rescued. He still tells us to pray to be relieved of it. And in his good timing, when he knows it's the right time, he will do just that. And so that's why we're called to sing, regardless of how good our week was or how difficult our week was. 
that either way we're to see the love of God in the good things and in the difficult things as well. Secondly, in verses 6 through 12 of this chapter, we want to see that uh, we're to sing and worship because God's love is truly unstoppable. And that's what was also said in Romans chapter 8. It's interesting, in verse 6, he starts to talk about creation. And you might ask the question, why is he talking about creation? He just said, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. And now he starts talking about creation. And then he kind of moves into talking about the nations and their plans and their counsel. And the question is, what is going on here? He says in verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So to fear the Lord is to be in awe of his greatness. He says in verse 9, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So if we understand, if you read through the whole psalm, you realize the emphasis is on put your hope in God's loving kindness. So how is that connected to creation? For the God who has promised to love you is a God who has commanded and caused things to come out of nothing into existence. Therefore, the question is, is there anything that can stop him from loving you? If he can call something out of nothing, can he bring good out of evil? Can he bring um, your circumstances together in such a way that you will be truly loved and cared for through it all? And the answer is yes. Even if there are people and nations that are trying to do just the opposite. So he says, verse 9, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. So you notice in verse 10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. In verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands. Verse 10, he frustrates the plans of the people. In verse 11, the plans of his heart from generation to generation will stand. And so he's making it very clear that if I can bring something out of nothing, I can certainly manage the world that I've created. And I can manage the world that I've created out of nothing in such a way that I can bring out of everything that which will be truly good, beneficial, and loving to those who put their hope in me for love. In Psalm 42, which eventually we will look at, it says the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Just like God commands something out of nothing to create the world, He commands loving kindness to flood our lives, to cover our lives, to surround our lives, to shield our lives, to be the only thing that is really true of our lives. God is loving us every second of every day, no matter how difficult difficult it may appear. That's why it says at the end of the Song of Solomon, Love is as strong as death, 
Many waters cannot quench love. Many waters, nothing can stop God from loving us. Um, Richard Siebes uh, was a Puritan who said, So in the world, the providence of God may seem to run cross to his promises. Providence versus promises. Providence means what he's ordained to happen. Promises are obviously how he's promised to love us. He says, one man takes this way, another runs that way. Good men go one way, wicked men another. Yet all in conclusion accomplish the will and center in the purpose of God, the great creator of all things. The creator is the manager. And no matter whether people are pursuing what is right or pursuing what is wrong, it will ultimately fulfill God's purpose. And we know in Romans 8 it says he has purposed to love us perfectly and to make us like Jesus. And we have to pray that we would not give in to the temptation to think that anything can prevent that. Spurgeon tells a story of an old um, seaman who looks at the tide and, and he sees the tide going out and the rocks are being uncovered and, and that seaman could say, you know what, if that continues, then the English Channel will dry up and the French will just walk right across into England. But Spurgeon says, no seaman believes that the tide is just going to continually go out, but that it will come back in. And he says, you know... That's the way it is really with how the gospel operates in the world. There are times when it appears that the tide is going out, that things are getting worse. They're getting worse in society. They're getting worse in our country. They're getting worse in the world. They're getting worse in the church. But the gospel will not be overcome. The gospel will not be um, defeated. The tide will come back in. So he would say... Nor will we speak as though the gospel would be routed and eternal truth driven out of the land. We serve an almighty master. If our Lord does but stamp his foot, he can win for himself all the nations of the earth against heathenism and Mohammedanism. <laughs> if I could say that, uh, Islam. Uh, agnosticism and modern thought and every other foul error. Who is he that can harm us if we follow Jesus? How can his cause be defeated? At his will, converts will flock to his truth as numerous as the sands of the sea. Wherefore, be of good courage and go on your way singing. The winds of hell have blown. The world its hate hath shown. Yet it is not o'erthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. It shall never suffer loss. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The gospel will prevail. God's counsel will succeed. Nothing can thwart that. No leftist agenda, no administration, nothing will overcome God's good plans for this world and for his people. In verses 13 through 17, it's an encouragement for us to be careful of where we look uh, for help and for happiness. It says in verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven, which means he reigns from heaven. He doesn't look just as a spectator. He looks at someone who is actually managing the situation. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all or fashions them together is another way to translate that. 
he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. If you go to Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat was afraid of this mighty army that was coming against Judah. That's the story where they pray and they say, Lord, we don't know what to do. We're, we're at your mercy. Please deliver us. And that's where they put the singers in the front of the army and God routes the uh, enemy and gives them the victory even though the multitude was great. God delivered his people. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. See the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. David says, God's delivered me from the lion and the bear. He will deliver me from uh, this giant as well. And he indeed did just that. The young man uh, killed the mighty warrior. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. And it's important to realize that there are all kinds of false hopes in our world. Indeed, everything but God is a false hope. If you put your hope in any particular person besides God, you're putting your hope for help and happiness ultimately in someone who can't give you all that you need, cannot do for you what only God can do. And it's important to realize that in all kinds of situations, um, Spurgeon could apply it in the situations of just being um, opposed by other people and being criticized. Um, Spurgeon is considered to be one of the greatest preachers who's, who ever lived. He preached in the 1800s. He's been called the Prince of Preachers. Uh, many people today consider him, apart from the Lord Jesus and Paul, probably right up there at the top in terms of godly men and, and preachers. And yet he was greatly attacked and opposed in his day and time. There were those who said, you know, he's like a, uh, a nine days wonder. It's like a comet that's going to burn out rapidly, uh, that, like a rocket that shoots up in the air and falls down like a stick. That he's only just going to be a short-term deal. And he could say, Down on my knees have I often fallen with a hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In an agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. So this man was not indifferent to what people had to say about him. In fact, it almost broke his heart. And yet he says... I've fallen on my knees. What do you fall on your knees for? You fall on your knees to pray. You fall on your knees to cry out to God. You, you look to God as your hope, not men. In fact, uh, he says something that's interesting in light of our cancel culture, where it seems like um, no matter what you try and do, you can be canceled for what you say. You're going to offend somebody. He said, I have found it utterly impossible to please. Um, let me say or do what I will. One becomes somewhat indifferent when dealing with those whom every word offends. I notice that when I have measured my words and and weight my sentences most carefully, I have then offended most, while some of my stronger utterances have passed unnoticed. Therefore, I am comparatively careless as to how my expressions may be received and only anxious that they may be in themselves just and true. That's where we are today in our culture. 
If you're simply concerned about whether or not something you say is going to offend someone, uh, you're not going to say and do a lot of things you ought to say and do. The question is whether or not what you say and do is just and true. Is it the truth of the word of God? Is it spoken in love? Is it pleasing to God, regardless of whether or not it offends or not? The only way you can do that is if your hope is in God. Your hope is in God's love, not in people. And that's why um, criticism and opposition and people saying um, you must not be very smart if you're not doing certain things or, or, you know, if you voted for somebody, you must not be very smart or whatever it might be. There's all kinds of things being said about people that's meant to make us conform. We are to conform, but we're to conform to the word of God. We're to conform to the image of Christ. We're to conform to what God says is pleasing. And the pressure on us to conform otherwise is great. And that's why our hope needs to be in God and his love for us. The last part of this um, chapter encourages us very specifically to put our hope in the love of God. In verse 18, he says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. In that sense, the eye, our eye is on God and his eye is on us. All those who have their eye on God, hoping in his love, God says, my eye is on you. you I promise you that if you're looking to me, I'm looking at you. I'm looking upon you. You need not wonder if I have your attention. If I, if, if, um, if I have your attention, you have my attention, is what the Lord is saying there. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. He's our help. He's our happiness because we trust in him who is love. And then verse 22 says, Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Which means, Lord, don't let our hope be unfulfilled. Fulfill your promises. Fulfill your promise to love us just like we're hoping that you will and God always does it's interesting that um, Calvin would say uh, there is nothing to which men are led with more difficulty than to set their hopes on God alone he says that's that's the real challenge is for men to put their hope in God alone not their circumstances, not other people or anything like that, but their hope in God and his love for us. Uh, there's a story that's told about this young man who was uh, on a ship in the middle of the sea and this storm comes up and obviously everybody's deathly afraid that they're, they're going to drown, that the ship is going to sink, but this young man is calm, peaceful, and even merry. And they ask him, you know, why aren't you afraid? What's going on? He says, oh, because... Um, my father is the pilot of this ship, and I know he cares for me. Someone has thought about that uh, story, obviously applying it to us as Christians, saying uh, this ship we're in, this world we live in, is actually piloted by our father. And it is stormy at times, it is dangerous, and yet, we can still rejoice, we can still be merry, we can still be happy and at peace. 
And someone has said, he, our father, is the pilot. He sits at the stern. And though the ship of the church or state be in a sinking condition, yet be of good comfort, our pilot will have a care of us. Or our pilot will love us. One of the things that's uh, disturbed me over the last year and a half or so is just to see the church sinking. The church in our country is being divided. The church in our country, and I'm talking about the evangelical church in our country, all across our country, is sinking in various ways. It's getting worse in various ways. Uh, There are plenty of people walking away from the church. There are plenty of leaders in the church that are compromising in various ways. And so it's It would be more than appropriate to say we are in a season where the the tide is going out. The the church in our country is sinking, so to speak. And certainly the country is sinking. We're sinking from the uh, levels of morality and freedoms that we've enjoyed for many, many decades. We're sinking. And yet we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear We can still rejoice. We can still sing. We can rejoice in the Lord. We don't rejoice in the sinking of the church, so to speak. We don't rejoice in the sinking of the state, the country, the government, so to speak. But we can truly rejoice in God and what he is doing. In uh, Psalm 42 and 43, um, if you want to turn there just quickly, I'll just highlight a, a few things as we wrap things up here this morning. One of the the big questions is, so what do I do when I'm down? And if you read um, books or chapters in the Bible like Psalm 42 and 43, you can see a very honest expression of depression and discouragement by godly people. And actually Psalm 42 and 43 actually fit together. Um, And in many Hebrew manuscripts, they're connected. They're not separated And it's because they have an ongoing theme. That theme is this refrain. In verse 5, it says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Then in verse 11, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Then chapter 43 Verse 5, again, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Hope is a forward-looking thing. You see, when he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, which means one day I'm going to praise him for something that he's going to do that I'm hoping for him to do. I'm waiting on him to help me. He says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. He will, it says in verse 11, he's the help of my countenance and my God. He will help me. He will be with me. He will help my own um, countenance. He He will deliver me from this depression and this discouragement. And he will meet my needs, whatever they are, because he's my God. So he's talking about the fact that I am down, I am... I'm discouraged, but I have a God, and I'm fighting to put my hope in him and his love for me. And as a result, he's, in a sense, arguing for 
are arguing with himself. You know, different ones have noted the fact that if you read closely those two chapters, he'll mention his enemies, he'll mention various circumstances he's in, but he doesn't focus on that as much as he focuses on his own heart. And it's the same kind of thing that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a book on spiritual depression, its causes and its cure, and he talks about the fact that there are reasons why we get down. And uh, he and others looking at these chapters will talk about the fact that there are all kinds of things that can discourage us. Uh, Not being able to go to church if we're bedridden, things like that. Uh, The taunting of unbelievers, the memories of better days while we're going through trials, overwhelming trials, waiting on God to act and he hasn't done yet what we're hoping that he will do, attacks from other people, our natural temperament. Some of us tend to be more prone to it than others. Physical sickness can cause that. Uh, Being down after being up high, you know, being on the mountaintop and then coming down after that. Attacks of Satan, just wrestling with not believing what God says. Uh, Great disappointments, great failures, the burden of getting old, etc., etc., etc. There are all kinds of things. Even uh, Calvin would say our soul is like a workshop for Satan to forge reasons for us to be in despair. And so what does Satan do? He says, okay, let me take what you're going through and let me show you why you ought to curse God and die. And so it's a fight. It's a fight. And, and that's what's happening here is in Psalm 42 and 43, and I'd encourage you to read back through that, through these chapters afterwards. He is, in a sense, um, arguing with himself. And let me just close by just mentioning three things. What do we need to do to fix our hope on God's love? To fix our hope on God's love is to mean to anchor it there and not move away from it. Not to allow our hearts to drift away from hoping in the love of God for us. The first thing is to fix your mind on the truth of it. And that's what we've been trying to do over the last several weeks. Is look at what the Bible says And we need to immerse ourselves in meditating on what the Bible says about God's love for us. We need to fix our mind on it. That's why it says in Psalm 119, Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. So we have to fix our mind on what the Bible says about God's love for us as his people. Secondly, we need to fix our prayers on the need for it. Uh, it says in Psalm 119 also, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant, which means I need to pray that I would rest in and hope in and believe that God is loving me <clears throat> whatever my circumstances are. I need to ask God for the grace to hold on to that and to believe it. So I give myself to the Bible that tells me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then I pray, God, help me to believe that I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Help me to believe that in my circumstances. And then finally, fix your fight on the protection of that. To guard your heart, to bring every thought captive to the truth that God is loving you perfectly and will love you fully and forever. Psalm 119 also says, Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. 
that last point about fighting is exactly what Psalm 42 is talking about. And um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I'll close um, with this. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, talking about in Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself by saying, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He, Martin Lloyd-Jones says um, his soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. So he's highlighting the fact that one of the applications is if I'm going to hope in God, I have to talk to myself. I have to preach to myself. I have to uh, do what he says in another place. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed and happy way. Now, there's a lot more to say about that because there are very understandable causes for depression where someone could say um, they've lost a loved one or they've lost a job or they've lost their health. And it's, it's probably readily apparent to everyone else as well as to them that they're in, de- they're in depress- depression because of that. And, and so, therefore, we're having to fight in those circumstances to... Um, not give in to the temptation to unbelief. But there are times, and Spurgeon talks about this, where he talks about causeless depression, where he just feels overwhelmed, that he feels so down that he can just weep like a baby and not connect it to anything, not have any idea why he's being overwhelmed with, with this grief and this, this depression or this discouragement. And either way, whether you can connect it to something or not, we have to fight to focus on the love of God for us, to pray to believe that love, and to hold on to it even when it doesn't lift, so to speak. And so what does that mean? In Second Corinthians it says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. There's a distinction here. We can be down but not despairing. Despairing means I have no hope. I can be down and still have hope. That's what Psalm 42 and 43 says. I can be down, I can I can be struggling, but I can still have hope. To despair is what leads people to take their own life. To despair is hopelessness. And we want to fight that because that's to say God is dead. If my hope is dead, then God must be dead. Like Martin Luther learned and saw. And so we can wrap up by simply saying we can acknowledge that we are low without concluding that we are lost. We can acknowledge that God is good even when it feels like he is gone. Feels like. 
Broken bodies also have broken brains as well as broken bones. So we must be careful of dismissing a real weakness that, that can coexist with real faith. You can have a real weakness emotionally, mentally, physically, and still have a real faith. Therefore, hope and despair do not go together, but hope and darkness do. We are to fight despair even though the darkness may not lift. So you can be trusting God and still feel down. You can be trusting God and still be struggling. As long as you're not in despair. That's the distinction we need to make. Is that we're to fight taking that one further step into despair. Because that says God is dead. That says I have no hope. We can't control how we feel. And there may be causes for it that we can identify. There may be causes for it that we can't identify. And the question is, am I fighting to hope in God? The reality is, like it says in the Footprints poem, sometimes we feel like we're walking alone when the reality is God is carrying us. The God who cares for us is truly carrying us even when it doesn't feel that way or look that way. So my encouragement to you, and if you want to, I'm going to send you notes that are more detailed. There's a lot more that could be said about this. Um, But let me encourage you um, to hope in God because things may get much worse in various ways, but that does not mean we need to despair. Our Father loves us. The Father loves you, and he wants you to rest in that, rejoice in that, even when you may feel down. Hang on to that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. So much more that could be said, but we pray that you would help us to meditate on what we've heard, to meditate on your word, to meditate on the truth of your love for us, Help us to pray that we would believe it. Help us to fight the temptation toward despair and to hang on to the truth of your love for us even when we we feel down, even when we are battling discouragement in various ways. Help us to hold on to you and not give in to the uh, strategies of Satan who would seek to turn every negative thing into an accusation of your failing to love us. Help us to trust you. Help us to hope in you. And may we find grace to rejoice in you in every situation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.